20-Minute History is an independent operation made possible with the help of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through the Acast supporter feature linked in the episode notes, or by going to patreon.com slash 20minhistory. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There are a few ways in which one could characterize the assignment of Robert Mayhew in the summer of 1960. Outlandish, absurd, damn near impossible. We've all heard of unlikely alliances, but certainly not even the madman in his wildest dreams would imagine a working relationship between the Central Intelligence Agency and the American Mafia. And yet, at the Hilton Plaza Hotel on the night of September the 14th, that is exactly the partnership the CIA had asked him to broker. His meeting that night was with Johnny Rosselli, a high-ranking member of a Cuban Las Vegas gambling syndicate. Posing as a powerful businessman, Mayhew claimed to represent several international executives whose ventures in Cuba were suffering massively due to their recent coup. In the minds of his clients, he explained, there was only one solution to these financial woes. Roselli was initially opposed to taking any part in the operation, but by the end of the night, he was persuaded to connect Mayhew to a Mr. Sam Gold in Miami Beach, who he promised would help them finish the job. Little did either of them know that this was only the beginning of a government-wide conspiracy to oust the most powerful communist dictator in the Western Hemisphere. I'm David A. Bradbury, and this is 20-Minute History. Season 2, Episode 2, Dethroning Castro. From the very moment that he walked into the White House as the newly elected President of the United States, John F. Kennedy had Cuba on his mind. Just a few years prior, this Caribbean island nation had been a reliable American ally, and before that it had even been a U.S. protectorate. However, that all changed on January 1st, 1959, when the government of Fulgencio Batista crumbled, handing the reins over to Fidel Castro and his band of communist barbudos also known as the 26th of July movement. For the U.S., losing a friend in such dramatic fashion was bad enough, but watching that same friend get cozy with Murica's arch-nemesis the Soviet Union, well, that was even worse. From there, Fidel heavily and quickly consolidated his executive power and cemented his role as an anti-American socialist dictator, prompting the White House to impose economic sanctions on the island, and relations between these national neighbors officially turned sour from there. 
Now fast forward now to January 19th, 1961, when these concerning developments served as the backdrop for a meeting between Kennedy and his presidential predecessor, Dwight D. Eisenhower. During their sit-down, Ike filled JFK in on a top-secret U.S. effort to stage a coup in Cuba and recommended, quote, that this effort be continued and accelerated. The ultimate result of this conversation, among other things, was the formal declaration of Operation Zapata, which would eventually become the Bay of Pigs invasion. And if you have any familiarity with the history of U.S. intervention in Latin America, you know exactly how well that effort turned out. It is not the first time that communist tanks have rolled over gallant men and women fighting to redeem the independence of their homeland. The Cuban people have not yet spoken their final peace, but there are, from this sobering episode, useful lessons for us all to learn. Some may be still obscure. To grant Kennedy the benefit of an overwhelming doubt, the thinking behind this colossal failure wasn't necessarily completely awful. The plan was this. A troop of Cuban exiles trained by certain members of the CIA in guerrilla warfare were to stage an amphibious landing at the Playa Giron in the southwest of Cuba. U.S. officials were hopeful that this conflict would spark a popular nationwide uprising against Castro's government, but in the event that it didn't, they had a convenient backup plan. If the exiles could take the beach and hold it for just long enough, America could recognize it as a provisional government and offer it overt military support. Thus, they could precipitate the fall of Castro without appearing as though they had participated in an outright coup. The planning was decent, but the execution, well, it sucked. Not only did Kennedy vastly underestimate the popular support Castro enjoyed, making a revolution extremely unlikely, he also scaled back U.S. air and naval support for the landing just before it was supposed to take place. And when the invasion initially faltered, he again refused to send support despite repeated suggestion from his advisors. In the end, nothing went to plan. And the guerrillas only occupied land on Playa Hidon for two days, before surrendering on April 19th, 1961. Of all the myriad responses to this travesty, I think that of the commander-in-chief best captured the mood. I quote, Well, f that shit didn't work. Okay, fine, JFK didn't actually say that, but come on, he may as well have. The utter failure of the Bay of Pigs invasion near single-handedly soured Kennedy's attitude toward overt military intervention for the rest of his tenure. But don't for a moment believe that that means he completely gave up on displacing the Cuban cur that was Fidel Castro. In fact, the CIA's attempts to make a friendly neighbor out of Cuba only escalated from there, with the president's only condition seemingly being that America's official involvement in any plan undertaken must be carefully concealed. This, of course, meant that another Sabata-esque invasion was entirely off the table, but that was pretty much the only exception. Kennedy intentionally left the door wide open to nearly any action the agency could take that would either directly or indirectly spell Fidel's downfall. And wouldn't you know it? They left behind a detailed record of all the plots they cooked up for us to go back and examine. How nice of them. Let's take a look at the more direct plans first. 
Both before and after the Playa Hidon fiasco, the CIA reportedly planned several attempts either to undermine Fidel's public charisma or to assassinate him altogether. Though these attempts were highly sporadic, totally bizarre, and completely ineffective, I think it's worth our time to briefly mention and analyze them here for two primary reasons. The first being that, as we alluded to in our intro segment, the U.S. intelligence community somehow saw getting rid of Castro as so instrumental to their future goals that they sought to ally themselves with organized crime in order to accomplish it. There's a duo out there which is more deserving of the title of odd couple I have yet to encounter them. And the second less important reason we should talk about them is that some of the ideas spawned by intelligence officials seem like they're pulled straight out of a Bond flick. For example, the first attempt on Castro's life involved using their mafia connection to furnish an assassin with poison pills designed to kill the target in three weeks, thereby making his death appear perfectly natural. Consideration was also given to poisoning the wetsuit the caster used for deep sea diving, as well as lacing his favorite Cuban cigars with botulinum toxins. There were also more traditional hit attempts, a la snipers on the rooftops, and then there were some which just... how? How did you think this would work? Like, at one point, the Americans contemplated a plan which would have involved placing thallium salts in Castro's shoes. Was this, you might ask, another ill-fated shot at killing him? No. Just to make his beard fall out. Just to make... Look. Apparently, the idea was that Fidel's beard was a symbol of the revolution. So if he lost it, the Cuban people would no longer see him as a symbol of the revolution? Either that, or U.S. officials were snorting something, or they thought that his beard was where he stored all his magic fairy communism powers, or both. Take your pick. Any explanation here makes about as much sense. Granted, many of these plans were abandoned almost as quickly as they'd been thought up, and those that were tried, it pretty much goes without saying that none of them came anywhere close to working. But that's no matter. The CIA had so much more up their sleeves than simply a random assortment of assassination attempts. On the contrary, these dramatic tales of hitmen and their various poisons are merely the tip of the iceberg, beneath which lies a vast web of tactics aimed at destabilizing, delegitimizing, and sabotaging the Castro government, all without setting a single American foot in Cuba. You've already met Operation Zapata. Now get ready for Operation Mongoose. We'll be right back. Hello, folk music fans. Gordon Lightfoot is one of the greatest folk rock artists ever. And now there's a podcast celebrating and discussing his work song by song. It's called Carefree Highway Revisited, and every episode, your host, that's me, Mike Messner, will examine one of Gordon's songs with the help of a special guest. So, if that's your cup of tea, why don't you follow us on Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn. That's Carefree Highway Revisited. 
Personally, I find it unfortunate that a lot of flashier historical events tend to garner the most attention. Because when it comes right down to it, it's often the actions that fly under the radar that carry more significant ramifications. Case in point, Operation Mongoose, an enterprise primarily spearheaded by the CIA and characterized by coordinated, covert efforts to remove Castro from power. Now, before we get into how the agency planned to accomplish this goal, it is once again worth emphasizing that just as with the assassination attempts discussed earlier, the value of examining these plots has almost nothing to do with their eventual lack of success. Though it is admittedly tempting, and more than a little funny, to reflect on Mongoose and see nothing more than a bunch of naive agency officials failing to do an impossible job, we should nevertheless consider the broader implications its execution carries, particularly with regard to the philosophy underlying U.S. Cold War interventionism. In other words, as we delve into this narrative, I want you to periodically ask yourself why the American government would consider overthrow to be not only a reasonable, but a necessary response to the situation at hand in Cuba. With that said, there's no better place to start than the beginning. On the 21st of November 1961, a meeting took place between JFK, Bobby Kennedy, General Edward Lansdale, who would later be designated head of operations, and CIA Director John McCone, which would serve to lay out Mongoose's official strategy. With images of Playa Hidon still haunting his memory, President Kennedy immediately made clear his firm opposition to any direct military intervention as a means to oust Castro. Instead, the four men ultimately agreed upon the following course of action. Step 1. Train Cuban refugees in the U.S. in guerrilla warfare tactics, much like they had done to prepare for the Bay of Pigs. However, in contrast to that failed operation, step two in this case would be place the exiles on the island discreetly and hope that they'd be able to inspire and lead a sort of grassroots resistance movement. With their plan decided, Operation Mongoose officially entered its preliminary stage, in which the search for suitable Cuban agents was initiated, means of collecting intelligence were established, and construction began on a $50 million a year CIA facility dedicated to preparing the counter-revolutionaries. By all accounts, the project had gotten off to an ambitious start. But that's not to say that there weren't also issues right at the outset. For one thing, there were some in the program who would have said that General Lansdale was being a bit too ambitious. By early 1962, he had assigned no less than 32 distinct tasks to Mongoose's various agents, which he hoped they would achieve in less than 10 months. This overzealous approach certainly seemed to rub CIA Director McCone the wrong way, as shortly thereafter he expressed concern to RFK that the general's timeline was perhaps unrealistic. And it's not like he didn't have a point. After all, Lansdale was essentially asking the CIA to foment an internal uprising out of thin air. There weren't really any notable resistance groups left in Cuba off which the agency could build, so it's no wonder many in the program were skeptical of their potential for success in the allotted time. Nevertheless, the preparatory phase of the operation wore on, culminating in February of 1962 with the release of Lansdale's program review, essentially a midterm evaluation of Mongoose's progress. In it, the general observed that due to the inherent limitations and dangers of their work, their project's advancements had been significantly slower than anticipated. Far from being a reality which he could learn to accept, however, Lansdale noted that the operation's plotting pace was among his top concerns. To hear him tell it, 
the longer they waited to act, the more their chances for success dwindled. Quote, if Cubans become convinced that the United States is not going to do more than watch and talk, I believe they will make other plans for the future. The bulk of disaffected people inside Cuba will lose hope and start accepting their status as captives of the communists. The urgency of their mission would then be immeasurably heightened less than a month later by receipt of intelligence that the Russians were building military bases on the island. Needless to say, news of a burgeoning Soviet-Cuban alliance was seriously perturbing to U.S. officials as it suggested that Castro may be willing to make his nation a pawn in their nuclear chess game. Lansdale and the Kennedys were determined not to let that possibility become a reality. In response, leadership pushed the Mongoose team to pick up the pace, insisting that intelligence collection be accelerated, the training of insurgents prioritized, and numerous contingency plans prepared. Now, if that makes it sound like very little had actually changed in terms of their means to achieve the desired result, that's largely because it hadn't. In fact, at this point, the capability of agency officials to speed things up was still significantly handicapped by the president's unwavering conviction that no form of military action would be considered. To a certain extent, this limitation was an understandable reaction to the failure of the Bay of Pigs, as mentioned earlier. But that may not have been the only consideration that gave the president pause. As Ayaz Hussein has argued, his caution may have also been driven by his concern that if he authorized a military strike on Cuba, the Soviet Union could retaliate by targeting West Berlin, a crucial strategic holding for Western Europe. And vice versa. If the USSR attacked Berlin without warning, the US could respond in kind by placing an embargo on Cuba. So even though various military ventures may have aided and even expedited Mongoose, Kennedy just didn't want to play that card unless he absolutely had to. Thus, even though virtually the entire operations team had become vocally frustrated with their sluggish pace, there was very little any of them could do to ameliorate the situation. Summer turned to fall, new air reconnaissance missions were launched, Radio Free Cuba made its first broadcast. Yet by September, there had still not been one successful sabotage operation carried out on the island. Then, as if matters couldn't get any worse, the entire undertaking would come to a screeching halt just a month later, when a U-2 spy plane captured pictures of MRBM missile sites set up by the USSR. The Cuban Missile Crisis began, and suddenly, the Kennedy administration had bigger fish to fry. Operation Mongoose slowly fizzled out, and was officially discontinued a few months later. In retrospect, Director McCone was right to question that hard work alone would propel their mission to success. To even think that the United States could covertly spark a populist uprising in a foreign nation is nothing short of a comfortable fantasy. The fact that many of Mongoose's leaders and organizers appeared incapable of recognizing that fact naturally raises the question, why could they not see what was right in front of their noses? To which I would propose the following answer. In actuality, they knew their goal was a long shot. But the imperative they felt to remove Castro from power must have been so strong as to lead them to ignore their lack of faith. Consider it this way. Kennedy knew that the U.S. largely did not have to fear a missile attack from the USSR, as the latter did not have ICBMs developed at the time. But Cuba 
a newly socialist neighbor that could join the Soviet sphere of influence and receive nuclear arms capable of striking the United States was a massive national security concern, a matter of life and mutually assured destruction. With this in mind, I think it's easy to see why U.S. leaders committed themselves to toppling Castro's government by any means necessary. Invading was out of the question, negotiation would have meant sacrificing some of America's own defensive interests, and doing nothing for all they knew may very well have allowed communism's influence to grow out of control, threatening the existence of Western civilization as they knew it. Thus, the White House chose to let the ends justify the means, considering any partnership, any plot, any project that had even the slightest possibility of dethroning Castro. The moral questionability or chance of success of any one directive really didn't matter, because in their minds the end goal was not just strategically critical, not just the ultimate moral good, but the only choice they felt they had. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of 20 Minute History. If you liked it, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, leaving a rating, and checking out all our socials at 20MINHistory. As always, a very special thanks goes out to Ayaz Hussein, Aviva Chomsky, J. Allen Wolsky, Piero Glejesis, and Edward Lansdale, all of whose works were instrumental to the writing of this podcast. Don't forget to join us for our next episode, in which I'll be saving you the trouble of reading history's most infamous book. But until then, I've been David A. Bradbury, and please stay curious, keep reading, and never stop learning, lest you-know-what repeats itself. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.